Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in to what is now the 21st past conversation and I have to say somewhat selfishly one that I've been really looking forward to because I get to catch up with a good buddy of mine that I haven't seen uh, for several years actually as it, as it transpires and it's, uh, it's James Traub. James is a military historian, he's based currently out in Washington DC, you'll certainly pick up from a, a twang to his accent that he's not Scottish even though we did meet uh, first uh, a while ago when he was studying here in Glasgow. Most recently his working role has been with the United States World War I Centennial Commission, where he was the education coordinator. What I'll do is I'll just pass across to James and he can say hi. Hey, everybody. Uh, thank you for having me again, Paul, and it's great to, uh, to hear that accent again and to see you again. Um, I'm really excited to, to get chatting because it's been really awesome being able to know you and other educators over in the UK, and particularly in Scotland. Um, and compare and contrast our experiences during the centennial or centenary, depending on where you are, and uh, and uh, as well as into the future with working with history. So, okay, James, just to, to get us started in our conversation, um, curious to know about your memories of studying history at school. Yeah, so um, I got interested in history relatively young. I would say it was uh, in first grade, which uh, in the States means about five, six years old. Um, I remember specifically watching the movie Gettysburg. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, man, you got interested based on a movie. But I can basically pinpoint that watching the movie Gettysburg got me interested in the American Civil War um, and got me interested from there. Uh, into history as well. I owe a huge chunk of my interest to history uh, to two people. First off is my father, who uh, grew up as an aviation fanatic and a, specifically a World War II aviation fanatic. So watching like the Battle of Britain and reading the old Dave Dawson books to me as I was falling asleep um, and all of those other, you know, aviation sort of uh, media um, got me really into that. And then uh, the librarian I had in my elementary school which was in the States is from age six to age 10, um, consistently was feeding me Civil War books when uh, she found out I was fascinated with it. So um, really kind of from there, it took off um, to the point that driving to visit family on the East Coast, it would become a necessity if my parents and younger sisters wanted to have a peaceful car ride that we stopped at at least one Civil War battlefield. Um, and, and then continuing on from there, it just slowly developed to the point that I started going to Civil War reenactments, started actively reading academically, going into high school, um, and, and then really sort of uh, deviated from the traditional following of American history when I was lucky enough when I was 14 uh, to be in Belgium. And I was super excited to go to Bastogne and see all the patent sites and all those American specific sites, but we just so happened to stop for a day in Ypres. Uh, and that's kind of where my history interest enlarged, uh, became more of an obsession. And it's like, okay, this is 100% what I want to do professionally, um, especially after talking with folks who were working there with Commonwealth War Graves Commission. And it's also where I started to pivot towards British history because I became absolutely fascinated by the whole First World War experience that uh, took place in Great Britain. And then uh, additionally, uh, coming back to the U.S., it was something I could connect with because I grew up in Michigan um, in a town called Ann Arbor, which is about an hour west of Detroit. Uh, and it was a site where I could be interested in, say, the American Civil War, but I would have to go to Pennsylvania or Virginia to see the sites and connect with the folks from my hometown to serve there. 
But going to places like where Fort Detroit once stood, River Raisin, which was a War of 1812 battlefield, I could connect with British history much easier in Michigan than I could connect with some American history, um, especially as a lot of that took place in the old colonial East Coast. Um, so it kind of just went from there to me majoring in history in college, uh, university, my undergraduate. Uh, I went to Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Again, picked specifically because they had an excellent study abroad program. And I was able for my entire third year of university to study at the University of East Anglia in Norwich, again, focusing on the First World War, um, where I came into contact with amazing educators like uh, Dickie Knight and Taft Gillingham, who were both in East Anglia. Uh, and then um, from there, I was like, well, I have to go back again. So spending your working, gathering money before I headed back over this time, thankfully, to the greatest city in the world, Glasgow. Uh, where I spent almost two amazing years doing my, my master's. So it was an absolutely fantastic experience. Um, and I owe a lot to the ability of when I was young, my teachers and especially that librarian who, was, who were able to keep me interested, keep me connected, uh, and uh, especially turn me away and say, we understand you're not that great at math, but you're really good at remembering facts about the Battle of the Psalm. Um, and then from there, you know, amazing professors in my undergraduate, Ian Isherwood, who's now a full-time professor at Gettysburg, Regina Sweeney, who I believe is still at Dickinson. Um, and then, yeah, saying, hey, yeah, you should follow the dream and, and keep going on. So I, I owe a lot to uh, teachers both then and now because they're also a huge influence for me as a non-teacher continuing to work in public history. So. Now, James, um, I'm putting you in the spot here um, in, in terms of this question because it's one that I'm sure could easily be asked of me uh, and I don't quite know how I might uh, go about answering it, but it's to asking you military history. It's clearly a passion of yours, a, a real enthusiasm, but, but why? What is it about military history? Yeah, so I think, again, going back to my younger years, obviously being passionate about the Civil War, the First World War, the war is the theme there. When I started studying history at an academic level um, uh, in my undergraduate, I began moving towards social history, getting really interested in how societies develop, how societies look at conflict as well as peace. Um, I had, a, a, again, an amazing professor my first year in my introduction to British history course who had us read Britons by Linda Colley. Um, which looks at the development of British identity among the working classes in 18th and early 19th century Great Britain. And uh, I was always a little self-conscious of studying military history. And it's a theme that I'm slowly seeing among other people who are uh, young academics or young professionals talking about it is a bit of a stigma. Because there is um, that idea that all you're doing is studying this regiment moved here and they were carrying this type of firearm and they were from here and they took this many casualties, which that is a part of it. And there's also nothing wrong with studying that. But I think for me, military history took on this greater sense of combining everything I was interested in into one general theme. As I got further developed in studying military history and I got further interested in the social history of Great Britain or the United States, I slowly realized that 
all of these topics, whether it be, you know, music development, I'm a huge fan of listening to historical music, you know, uh, literature, can't say I'm as big on that, but I appreciate it. Um, and, and art, all of these other topics can all be combined in military history. Military history is not just the study of battles and leaders and regiments. It's also the effects of all of these wars, all these conflicts on societies as they develop. What historians will call new military history, but really isn't that new anymore because it came about in the mid 20th century. But new takes a long time for historians to, to drop. So I kind of continued on there knowing that if I fell under the veil of military history or under the umbrella of military history, I could continue to study all of these various things and connect them back to overarching conflict. Uh, an amazing, that was what I tried to do with my masters. I was absolutely fascinated with taking a core group of Glaswegians, studying their experience in the first world war and seeing how it impacted Glasgow working class society when they came back and how they might've reported the war differently to say someone who came from London or someone who came from the United States because Glasgow and, and working class lowland Scotland was a different society than London or the North of England or anywhere else in the world. So I ended up focusing on the Cameronians, the Scottish rifles and talking about how they as primarily working glass Glaswegians when they started off, but again, drawing folks from all over the UK develop this own sense of war and their reaction to conflict, how they went about conducting conflict was different from everybody else due to their lowland Scottish upbringing and especially their city Scottish upbringing, mainly coming from the greater Glasgow area as well as Edinburgh and uh, the rest of the central belt. So it, it, it for me, it, it's not only the story of battles being won, it's not only the story of battles being lost, it's the story of these societies developing at these pivotal moments in their history. Uh, obviously, Scottish society, all societies that took part were drastically changed by the First World War, as well as every other conflict they've been a part of. But especially for all societies in Great Britain, the First World War is pivotal for them defining how they look at war up until today. And so studying military history for me is the best way to get an over-encompassing view of everything that's going on. It includes the politics, it includes the economics, it includes all of these different things. So to completely write off military history, I think is, is wrong. Um, but to acknowledge that it's not just the battles, it's, it's everything coming together to create this greater story, uh, I think is the big strength of military history. And that's why I continue to proudly call myself a military historian. Um, it will always draw me back in. Um, and I know growing up in Michigan, focusing on the American Civil War, uh, seeing the impact the American Civil War had on the brand new state of Michigan with all these people trying to define themselves as Michiganders is, is you know, also something that continues to drive my passion for that um, as much as I really do try to focus on the First World War in Great Britain. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's something that I think will continue to be developed and I think is slowly regaining its appreciation um, I, I've now feel comfortable telling people I'm a military historian with them understanding that I am not, uh, there because I just really like guns. Um, but it, it, it's, it's something that it's always been a huge push for me. And I think that 
in the future, especially, is going to become accepted in mainstream that it's the study of conflict. Uh, perhaps not using the term military historian, but conflict historian uh, and conflict history uh, is going to be the way forward. So, but it's an absolutely fascinating topic, and I'm never, I'm not giving it up anytime soon. So. James, something that I've been looking forward to having a chat with you about today is um, following on from the, the centenary of the, the First World War, something that I know we were both um, involved in, in in different ways and our own projects and whatnot. But I get the impression that, that there's potentially a difference uh, in terms of the memory of the, the First World War, should we say, here in the UK and, and how it's remembered in the US. And I just wondered if you if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um one of the number one memories, I think, and a great place to start I have is last time we hung out, which was at the 2018 anniversary of the Battle of Amiens, um, because we were with a group of international students. So you were with a group of students from Scotland, and there were greater groups from all uh, other parts of the UK. Um, I was over with, with about 20 American students, and there were students from Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and France. Uh, and I thought it was absolutely fascinating how each individual teacher who came over with their group was responding differently to student questions, how the students engaged differently to all the topics. Um, now, obviously we were walking across British battlefields, so that is one aspect of it, but I will always notice, especially among the British, the Australians and the Canadians, New Zealanders as well, that there is a different sort of reverence and respect for the time period than there is for Americans. Uh, Americans generally don't know a lot about World War I. It falls in a really awkward position in our history timeline. Uh, so just 50 years before was the American Civil War, our bloodiest war, something that in many will argue we're still fighting today, um, thankfully without firearms. But it is a, then bordered on the other end by the Great Depression and the Second World War, which is something that everybody has a, a connection to. Everybody's grandfather, or great-grandparents fought. Everybody's great-grandmother served in a factory, something like that. So, And it's also this time of the United States rising up, joining with its international partners and defeating fascism and, and you know evil governments throughout the world. World War I doesn't really provide that story for Americans, and that's also a massive turnoff, I think, for a lot of people who want to get involved in studying uh, history in general. The United States is only really involved militarily uh, from the spring of 1918 to the armistice in November. Although the United States entered the war in April of 1917, the first major American combat deployments to France don't take place until the spring a uh, full year later. So seeing that timeline of when American troops are actually arriving in France and serving in battles is also somewhat detrimental because if you look at the Civil War where there's heavy combat engaged all four and a half years of the war, as well as the Second World War, um, all the way from 1941, December 7th, 1941 to 1945, same deal. So Americans see themselves showing up at a tail end of a greater war and it's like, well, it didn't really solve anything. We went into another world war. And especially now when people do learn about the effects of world war one, they think about of the issues that the United States is facing on a foreign policy scale today that were created because of things like Sykes-Picot, um, the creation of all these different states and, and colonialism issues. So world war one 
continues to be incredibly problematic to get Americans interested in. And even if they are interested in history, getting them to, to focus in on and respect this time period is something that really changed and developed the United States. The other issues we have are that if Americans are exposed to World War I in school, uh, it is generally not through an American point of view. The one place you may get World War I is actually in your literature classes, in your English classes, and it will be through the war poets or through folks like J.R.R. Tolkien. If they, uh, if your teacher mentions that he was a World War I veteran and, and that inspired quite a bit of his writing. Americans will also consume a heavy amount of media through film like uh, They Should Not Grow Old, which was one of the best performing documentaries in American film history, uh, or 1917. Again, a, an amazing film and one of the few highlights to the year 2020. Um, but so they, again, they get interested from that British perspective. I did as well. I was interested because I went to eat. I had a relative who served in the First World War. He was in the American Expeditionary Force. He was at all of the Amer major American battles. And I have his diary. But even with that, I was still completely focused on developing the British kind of story of the First World War. I thought it was much more emotionally uh, charged. I thought it was much more uh, divisive. So it was great as an academic to kind of argue, especially when you talk about, you know, the lines led by donkeys argument, all of that. So um, the United States just doesn't have that whole structure and logistical background to get folks interested and, and develop their passions for the First World War if they are interested. That is changing, especially because of the centenary. Interest in World War I is still at a very all-time high in the United States, and it's continuing to grow. Uh, because of the centenary, I got interested in the American Expeditionary Forces and developed my connections with my relative who served, and also kind of exploring non-English speaking sources. Most Americans also do not like the fact the United States was not the major player in this conflict. The United States was completely uh, owing its success or failures, but its ability to wage war on France. So you need to have a good understanding of the French war effort and the French war participation to understand why the Americans did what they did. That is not great for a lot of American audiences interested in traditional military history because they want someone like Eisenhower who yes it's an allied war effort but there's an American leading it so that raises issues you know General Foch leading all of these international forces is a Frenchman and due to events that have occurred since World War II opinions of France go up and down in the United States um, right now we're, we're we're at a pretty good level I hope um, but so there, there's that unfortunate aspect to it as well. Um, Americans didn't use their own tanks. They didn't use their own artillery. They didn't use their own aircraft. Very limited scale where American made weapons uh, of war, particularly tanks um, and aircraft use. Everything else was French uh, or British, especially in the case of aircraft. So again, there's not the story of the American arsenal of democracy churning up like they do in the Second World War. That, they learned that lesson from the First World War and are able to push into the Second World War saying, hey, we have to have a little bit of preparedness for this to get uh, everything um, rolling by 1941. So it doesn't have those aspects of a story that Americans like. And that's a, a massive issue. I think the big one for me who have is focused extensively on the British experience of war and particularly the Scottish experience of war there is also a large issue with connecting the loss of the First World War um, back home. 
the First World War remains our third bloodiest war behind the Second World War and the Civil War. Um, but again, we were only engaged for a very brief period of time. That means that our third bloodiest war is still contained in about a nine month span as compared to the four and a half years of, of the Civil War, World War II. Additionally, our largest battle and still to this day, our bloodiest battle, the Meuse-Argonne Offensive, no one on the street will be able to tell you what that was. They might be able to tell you about the Battle of Gettysburg or D-Day or the Battle of the Bulge, but Meuse-Argonne skips over a lot of folks' heads. Compare that with walking down the street after the centenary in Britain and asking people if they've ever heard of the Battle of the Somme. Have they ever heard of, you know, even other British war efforts, you know, Battle of Britain, it's still thrown around every day in politics. Um, I was very surprised in Scotland to know that Scottish students studied in particular the Battle of Luce and the Battle of Arras, two massively important Scottish battles of the First World War, where a large amount of Scottish units are involved. Um, and so it, it, it's different all across the United States. Just like in the UK, uh, there's different styles of teaching. There's different requirements for history teaching in each state in the United States with overarching federal guidelines. Um, I didn't have World War I history at all in school. Uh, I graduated from high school in 2011. So uh, I all World War I work that I did was my own interest saying, oh, you have a uh, literature project and you get to pick your own topic. I'm going to focus on the war poets or I'm gonna focus on this diary I read. Uh, there's such a poor amount of funding for all humanities in the United States right now that getting history focus among all the other ones is an issue as well. Just not only the First World War, every topic. Um, and it's something that we're struggling with. And I know a lot of other countries struggle with as well. Focus on STEM has been great because you need really great scientists. You need really great mathematicians. But you also need people who are able to understand your culture, where you came from, and how that matters to every day. Um, and that's been an issue, especially if you look at um, issues of race and gender, which is a hot topic, um, especially now. The way women and minorities in the United States were treated during the First World War was absolutely abysmal. It's something the United States is still working on today. And it is something that American historians traditionally shied away from. It's only in the past 20 or 30 years that we've really started to, you know, hit face on, listen, this was a racist society. This was one that didn't offer the same privileges to everyone, even though the Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal. Um, and so now you've got this great growth of literature and interest growing out of the First World War because of the issues of race and gender which existed at the time. And I would argue that although the United States is very far behind in terms of studying traditional military history um, uh, or even sometimes political economic history of the First World War, one of the places where we're really gaining steam is really gaining strength is a study of minority communities in the First World War and the study of women in the First World War. It was the first war in United States history where women were members of the military, not just nurses volunteering or other aides volunteering uh, outside with charitable organizations. There were women who were registered members of the U.S. military. In fact, some women uh, who joined the U.S. Army Signal Corps and were colloquially known as the Hello Girls actually didn't even get recognized as members of the military, even though at the time they were told they were members of the army until President Carter in the 70s finally gave them their pensions. So there was still that issue playing out. African-Americans in particular as well, obviously horribly treated. 
there is uh, ongoing debates as to whether or not the African-American combat units that did see action were sent off to the French due to racism or other issues. Um, there was constant issues between uh, American troops and local inhabitants due to the race issues they brought over with them. A uh, perfect example would be there's a cafe, African-American soldiers can go to it while they're stationed in France, and it's not until the white U.S. troops show up that all of a sudden they're not allowed to go to that cafe anymore. That's something we still deal with if you go to see any World War I memorials in the United States. I live in Virginia now. If you go to the memorials anywhere here, again, I'm in a suburb of Washington, D.C., a major metropolis. But if you go to my neighborhood's World War I memorial, it is separated by uh, white people and black people. There's a separate list that says colored among those who died during the war from my neighborhood. So it's an ongoing issue. Uh, however, it's getting a really good amount of attention. I think that if you asked a group of Americans who had a passing knowledge of the First World War, if they've heard of the Harlem Hellfighters, they probably will have. They're growing to be a famous enough group due to some, there's an amazing graphic novel that came out a few years ago about them by the same guy who wrote 300. Um, so that interest is growing as well. And thankfully it's something that we can use to really re-examine ourselves as a country right now. Um, History is always driven by current events. And so with the events that have happened in the United States over the past two, three years, uh, it's something that will really show interest. It will really drive interest to this time period again, I believe. Um, it is a pivotal moment in race relation history in the United States. Uh, it is the age where the young men who are learning about how to lead uh, civil rights movements are, are gathering their initial experience with it and will go on in later life to lead the famous civil rights movements in the 1950s, 1960s. Um, it is a time where women are fighting for the right to vote and eventually get the right to vote. Uh, and it's a time of great reunification as well. We're struggling with the impacts of the American Civil War still to this day. Again, I'm a northerner who now lives in the South. So I am, uh, I kind of do feel like a, uh, I tell people I'm continuing the 155 year occupation of Northern Virginia, but I am uh, consider myself a proud Virginian now. And looking at the letters of Virginia soldiers who served in the war, they are saying, well, you know, our fathers and grandfathers fought in the Confederate army, but now we're going back over to fight as Americans. So there's also this great reunification sense. And my hope is that in the future, the First World War is going to be used as this time that says, wow, this is a really bad moment in our history. Race relations, gender relations were horrible, but we started to curve upwards. We started to make things better starting now, 1917 to 1919. It's when Americans were exposed to each other for the first time on a large scale. You weren't all soldiers in the 1st Virginia Regiment coming to you from Fairfax County. You had a guy from Fairfax County, Virginia, serving next to a guy from Los Angeles, California, an Italian immigrant from New York City, you know, um, and so they were getting exposed to folks from overseas. The soldiers from Virginia served for a bit in the British Army and were trained by the 16th Battalion Royal Scots. From there, they went and served with the French Army and were, uh, became uh, exposed to French culture, French ideals. So it's the bringing out of the United States on an international scale, too, that's going to hopefully pivot more interest uh, to, to the First World War in the United States. It's going to be hard to keep people's interest up, but I think it's something we can do. 
And I think there's nothing wrong in addition with Americans being interested in British history. I'm absolutely fascinated by it. I got my master's degree studying on the Scottish experience of World War I, and I'm continuing to really hone my French skills and research French history and that French connection to the First World War, because I feel like as an American historian, it's something I should understand. So there's a lot of room to grow, and we've come a really long way over the past five years. But there's still these general ideas of the First World War being a small speed bump with unfortunately dark history and undertones to it in that overall path of American history. Um, I could talk about this for 10 hours or more, and I tried to compress it as much as possible right there. <laughs> so. And James, just to, to finish off, I'm curious to ask you something I've asked many people that I've been lucky enough to speak to is if there's anyone watching uh, or listening to this and they themselves have an interest in, say, a particular historical time period, what advice would you give to someone who, you know, wants to learn a bit more about history? Yeah, I would say a few things. First off, don't be, never be intimidated. It's okay to say, wow, this person knows a lot more than I do, but Almost everybody in this field is willing to help you, and everybody starts at one point or the other. There are historians that I look up to immensely, and every single one of them, when I've asked how to go about something, how to research something, or even just to, to read something I've written, has been insanely helpful. They've, they've all spent the time and walked me through the process. So if you're brand new to the field, don't worry. You're going to be in a field that's very supportive, um, especially among military historians, because we're a relatively small field, as well as First World War military historians and First World War military historians in the United States. There's like five of us. So don't worry about it. And we all we all know each other. We all talk to each other. It's a little bit more than five. But um, so don't worry about that. The other thing I would say is it's never too late to start. Um, someone who came up to me once when uh, I was giving a tour of the Muse Argonne said, oh, I would love to, you know, go and get my master's or uh, spend a lot of time reading books about this battle and about the overarching soldier's experience of the First World War. I was like, you should. Nothing, you know, go for it. You know, uh, there's nothing that's going to stop you except yourself. Um, and I think the most important thing is to recognize, especially in years like we've had, everybody feels the way you do. There are going to be days where you're like, I just can't pay attention while I'm reading this book. There are going to be days where oh, I wrote two sentences and I want to get this whole book chapter done. Don't worry about it. Everybody has those days. Everybody also has imposter syndrome. <laughs> there's going to be there's days where you say, wow, I am just not as good as X, Y, or Z person. The best historians in the world have those days. And I'm thankful to know that those historians have mentioned to me when I was feeling like that, that they've had those days. Everybody is on your team. Everybody is on your side. If someone says, I would change this about whatever you've written or whatever statement you've made, don't take that as an insult. Say, hell, yeah, you know, they're trying to say, hmm, maybe I'll change this a bit. And here's my perspective. And guess what? You don't have to change it if you don't agree with it. So keep that in mind. The community exists for a reason. It's structured for a reason, for better or for worse. And understand that we're all going through the same things as we try to 
better our own as well as the public's understanding of pivotal events um, throughout world history.